the way teaching is typically done just doesn't match how the brain actually learns. Our approach to teaching is based on the assumption that the professor, the teacher has a pen and the professor, the student's brain is a sheet of paper. And that's actually uh, wrong. That's Sanjay Sarma, a professor and the vice president for open learning at MIT. He's just out with a new book that he co-wrote called GRASP, The Science Transforming How We Learn. It's full of surprising truths about things like how memory works and why learning at its best is kind of an adventure. In fact, if he were to make a Hollywood film showing his ideal classroom, it would look a lot like the 1980s TV series MacGyver, where the hero constantly has to use common items that are in the world around him to do things like diffuse bombs, which in his life somehow are always about to explode. All right, MacGyver, think. Rope. A smoke alarm. Sheets of plywood. Yeah. It just might work. You've got to unleash the inner MacGyver, you know? That's life, right? I mean, life throws problems at you that are spaced, that are interleaved, etc. And um, we've got to sort of somehow capture that. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge. Today, we are looking at how the human brain really does grasp new concepts and what teachers can do differently to better connect with learners. To do that, I talked with Sanjay Sarma of MIT, and I promise we didn't just geek out about cheesy 80s TV shows, though I will admit I loved MacGyver when I was a kid. I started by asking him why he felt the need to write a book about what science tells us about how learning works. If you look at the educational uh, landscape today, there's all this dogma, but you can do this and you can do this and you should do it this way and this is our tradition. And um, a lot of it is, um, it reminds me of medicine before the uh, birth of x-ray, you know, before we had genetics and biochemistry and before we knew, you know, blood types and all that stuff, right? So um, now, uh, knowing all this, uh, I question a lot of the structures and dogmas in education that are very closely held, but not necessarily based on science. And, um, and I think if, you, if we have the courage to re-examine these assumptions um, and reconstitute education, I think there's an incredible opportunity to change the game, you know? And I, uh, after rambling about it uh, for many years, I felt that a book was a good idea, and Luke was an incredible partner in doing this, and so we put it together over the last few years. And it's called GRASP. So in a nutshell, what is the, uh, why grasp? Yeah, so what does it really mean to understand something? I mean, really, really, really understand something, right? You can feel it in your bones, you know? Like friction, when I, which I teach, right? Or angular momentum, these are my topics. Or it could be something like, you know, Greek philosophy, you know, the Stoics, right? What does that mean? Where did they come from? You know, who was, uh, you know, who, who was Zeno? You know, why did uh, Strabo pick up on it? I mean, to really feel it in your bones, to really understand something, we actually don't have the words to explain it. It's one thing to memorize something. And strangely, the word grasp shows up in many languages. First of all, English, grasp, you hold something, right? The Latin is comprehend, which is to grab something. In Hindi, uh, language I grew up with, it's pakadna, which is to hold something. The German word for it is, I think, I've forgotten the word, it's kripke or something, grip. 
you grab it. So there's something very really physical about grabbing it and totally getting it, you know? Even the word getting it, it's physical, right? So that's, so I didn't come up with the term, actually. The term was, uh, I think, uh, our uh, editor came up with it. And I thought, you nailed it, man, because I, it fits all these linguistic things I've been uh, playing with, so. I was really struck by the way, for instance, memory works when you really look at some of the research on this. Could, I wonder if we could start there. Are there, it feels to me like people kind of have a, a kind of sense in their head of how memory works. And it's pretty much based on your metaphor in some ways um, of, of sort of how you, you kind of get it and then it's there. Um, you, you know, you learn something and then boom. But that's not necessarily what the science says, right? Yeah, it's very counterintuitive. You know, I think our approach to teaching is based on a false um, impression of how memories are formed. Our approach to teaching is based on the assumption that the professor, the teacher has a pen, and the professor, the student's brain is a sheet of paper. And all the professor has to do is write on the teacher's brain, right? And the teacher, I'm sorry, the student's brain, and the student didn't get it, it's their fault because, you know, damn it, the professor is writing on their brain, that sheet of paper, right? And that's actually uh, wrong. It turns out the right way to think of our model of the world is it's like growing a plant. We are forming a model of the world. And the professor and everything else is at the service of that plant that is growing, right? In fact, in, in uh, agriculture, it's called uh, precision agriculture. You give it sunlight when it wants sunlight. You give it water when it wants water, water, you want to give it potassium, nitrogen when it wants it, not when you want it, when it wants it, right? So the problem with our assumption with memory is that we've assumed the teacher can still, can imprint it on the brain of the student. Not true. Actually what happens is that the student has to, um, on the one hand, formulate a, listen to the teacher and formulate a model of the world, but the other thing that happens is the student forgets. It's a very natural instinct to forget things. and and it turns out that spacing out and reminding is essential to, to true learning. And then if you get, come, at, come at it from different contexts, it makes it very rich. And, um, and, the, more, the, more, and the best time to remind someone uh, is when they're about to forget it. So forgetting is a very important step in the pathway to learning. And this might all seem very strange and mystical and mysterious, but it turns out this is a basic fact in neuroscience. It turns, sh shows up in in worms, it shows up in fruit flies. It's been replicated at that level. Yeah, I, I wanna ask you, like, before we, I, I wanna just like really emphasize this because it's so fascinating, right? It's like, there's that cliche, right? It's like that failure is the key to success, but that, in a way, what you're saying here is even more profound because it's like forgetting is actually the way to learn. It's forgetting is a necessary part of putting new information in your head. And it's on a biological, like a biological level that somehow, you know, your brain is made to forget it. And I guess that comes down to this idea that actually forgetting is a feature, not a bug. Absolutely. Do you remember the temperature of the water when you wash your hands this morning and, and you know, when you were in the bathroom and, you know, brush your teeth, right? You don't because it's useless information unless it was an exception, right? That's called saliency. The fact of the matter is the reason the brain wants to forget stuff is most information is useless. But if it shows up two or three times, the brain's like, oh, my God, you know, I've got to remember this. So it is, in fact, absolutely a feature, not a bug. And it, by the way, in signal processing, we call it a low-pass filter. Something shows up many times, right? In a, over a long period, you go, oh, my God, this is important. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, this is interesting. So you, yeah, your work in all kinds of technological um, fields before you were obsessed with, you know, like were fascinated with education is to be doing things like designing RFID tags that, that are on inventory and stores everywhere. Do, do you feel like your, how did your work in those spheres prepare you for this, for this, you know, learning science? It's very interesting, uh, Jeff. It's a, it's a really good question. Um, and uh, the two particular angles that converged here. The first is that in my research, I've never been loyal to my field. I've never been a part, you know, done just mechanical engineering things. I've sort of wandered, you know, into territory. I was a novice and I had to learn, right? And um, and so I have a very fresh memory of learning, you know. Um, you know, I'm in my 50s, but I was learning in my 40s, right? So first of all, that's one thing. And I was learning as an adult, right? It's completely new things, right? New fields. So that's one. And the second thing is that as I studied um, the science of learning, I saw all sorts of parallels to signal processing. In fact, um, um, you know, we, you and I right now are talking over, you know, um, microphones and internet and all that. And one of the things that's happening right now is that all these systems are actually smoothing out. They're removing high-frequency noise, all right? And in fact, forgetting is a form of remo removing high-frequency noise, which is all the information you don't need. It's actually very similar. So when I say low-pass filter, it's actually exactly that. So uh, so in two different respects, yeah, I mean, I, I it uh, sort of reinforced my, my, my uh, interest in, in this field. Wow. So, okay, so we have, so forgetting is important as people remember, and therefore spacing out learning is, is important. What if you're an educator, sometimes you don't have the, the structures of our traditional classes today don't necessarily then kind of fit the way people need to learn, do they? Because, you know, when you said, you know, like writing into the brain at a set time for the, when it's convenient, for the professor, that's not the necessarily the way it's going to actually grow this knowledge. So, how what can an educator do um, to to sort of act on this finding? You know, for instance, and other things you've learned. Let me, let me sort of be a little bit philosophical. Um, you are a parent, Jeff. I'm a parent, and every yep, parent yep. knows two or three things. One is, you know, your child will learn for about listen to you for about ten minutes or so, and then they they tune out. By the way, that's called mind-wandering, and that's a fundamental aspect of the brain, right? Uh, you also know that when they tune out, you sort of know to back off, right? And you know that when they're sitting in the car in the back seat and, you know, they're in a receptive mode, you can hit them again. You go, remember the thing I told you about? Well, you just practiced two things, three things. Number one, you practiced, um, avo you avoided mind-wandering, which is a very basic human thing. The mind has to connect dots, you know. We somehow explain that away as not paying attention and daydreaming. That's fundamental. It happens after 10 minutes. Second, you ask questions. That's called retrieval learning. And third, by picking up a day later, you're doing space learning, right? So actually, our uh, evolutionary prerogative, our evolutionary sort of right, is to be learning animals. We're unique in the animal kingdom in the extent to which we base our existence on learning, right? We learn until you're age 20, you're immature until age 20. The problem is parenting is not terribly scalable. So one of the challenging things about education is we're trying to scale something that is designed for one-on-one. -on -one. It's actually quite difficult. So the, so this tension is normal. It's expected. The problem is we forget that there's a tension on the other side, pulling away from the sort of the sit-down-and-I'll-lecture-you model, right? 
So what a teacher, and I'm, you know, my mother was a teacher, and I'm, I think teachers, the really good teachers have inspired me. What the good ones do is they know, even in a class setting with 20 students, 30 students, how to sort of mimic that, you know, personalize it. Remember what the student said, right? And then ask them the next day, make it interesting. So they play games, but really, if you want to do it at scale, online can do that better. But there are things that you cannot do online that teachers need to focus on, in my view. What's an example of something you can't do on the internet that teachers need to be there for? So it turns out that sort of a bunch of cognitive tricks, like the ones we discussed, space learning, you know, short lectures, retrieval learning, etc. all these things you can do online. By the way, language programs like Babel or Duolingo, they, they use these thick tricks, okay? Here's what a teacher cannot, uh, can, only a teacher can do, and it's harder to do online, coaching. The emotional connection, hands-on, context. Student is doing a project, the, the teacher is looking over the shoulder and saying, hmm, interesting. Actually, friction goes the other way. Try it this way. It's there that a teacher can add value. And that's, you know, it sort of ties, it. you know, the word flip classroom is a little bit coarse, you know, it's a sort, of, sort of a broad brush. But if you can flip the classroom and the teacher becomes the mentor, the uh, the coach, the person who provides context and on the back end of, you know, once a student has consumed the content, right? Right. The flipped classroom means they've kind of watched the le traditional lecture on a video in their own time. And then the classroom is something else is happening in the classroom. Exactly. And in the front end, even before the student watches a, the video, work on curiosity because we have all the science that shows that... Uh, if a student is curious, the brain releases something called dopamine. There's a dopaminergic circuit. It's similar to uh, hunger and saliva is the analogy I draw. So, so the teachers right now are doing the one thing actually we could do better online. And we're not leaving them the time to do the things only they could do. It's sort of a tragedy, actually. That, yeah. And so um, why, you know, how, how do you think these lessons, you know, what do you propose as far as as going forward? I mean, right now, there are a lot of people experimenting with online teaching, whether they wanted to or not, at K-12 and college and all kinds of levels. And, you know, I don't know that they're necessarily doing, you know, I think there's this idea that this emergency remote learning may not be the ideal way to do it. Um, what What is your advice to to sort of get some of these ideas out there if you think they might help. So, as I said, I'm a, um, uh, you know, my mother was a teacher, and teachers are doing an amazing job in very difficult times. But I think what we have is structurally, we had socially distanced learning before, before uh, social distancing became necessary to begin with, right? The student in the back of a 40% or a 100% classroom is distance learning to begin with. They were not being paying attention, right? And what happened with during the COVID uh, uh, tragedy, frankly, is that um, we've just exposed that. Basically, we've, you know, we're putting people at the other end of a Zoom. So what little human connection was there is gone, right? And the Zoom classroom is not online learning done right. It's actually the worst form of online learning. Uh, it's just that, you know, humanity is coping, right? And in many ways, it's uh, it's inspiring to see human humanity sort of do this and be resilient, but this is not what we want. True online learning, and what I hope teachers can do even today, is just you know as you and I are doing today, jury rigging, you know, using the iPhone to record this uh, this conversation, right? Yeah. Shoot a selfie video explaining what you're talking about. Be fun. Be interesting. 
right? And flip the classroom on the Zoom. Make it a discussion, right? I mean, if you, even something as mundane or boring as, you know, vibration, which is something I teach, right? I would say here's a little video I did it on 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 my iPad um, using a software called this is what I might do explain everything right and I say to my students go around your house and find things that are vibrating the dryer the washer the or the car engine put a glass of water on it visualize it right what is the direction of the vibration and then the classroom shoot a little videos and let's talk about it I, I will interweave the math into it trust me right so now that takes a little bit more work but that's what we end up we'll end up having to do but the good news is if we get into that world when we when when nature returns the luxury of proximity to us i hope we're gonna up our game and not recreate what we were doing in zoom classrooms you know now what you, you were you mentioned that you yourself went into this and became a learner um, in a new discipline for you, which is learning science. What what blew your mind? What is something that you were surprised by? I think what blew my mind was that I came in with a perspective of what teaching and learning were. And I was struck by how off it was from how the brain operates. And I was struck by- And you've been teaching for decades as, as part of your work. Yeah, 20 something, yeah. I mean, I'd been teaching for a long time, right? I didn't know what attention was. Can you, build, you know, you're not paying attention. Well, do you know what attention is, Professor? No one asked me that. But if they did, I wouldn't have had an answer. What is the answer? Uh, the answer is not, are they looking at me? It's not, are they taking notes? It's not all the behavioral aspects. Are they ingesting it? Are they sense-making? And that works for about 10 minutes. And after that, something else kicks in, which is... Um, attention in the sense that it looks like attention, the student is building familiarity with the material but not learning it, right? Hmm. So right there, you know? So every little thing, like this forgetting and learning, right? Here's another one, interleaving, right? Should you learn the same thing continuously or should you interleave two different things, right? It turns out interleaving is better. And by the way, that even applies to muscle memory, right? If you want to become a good tennis player, don't keep hitting backhands you know, from the back court, do backhand volley, backhand forehand, forehand volley, you know, because if you interleave, the muscle memory gets better because you're pulling up that procedure into your brain. So all these things that I'm thinking, oh my God, our entire classroom structure, our entire structure, this whole dogma didn't come down, you know, on a tablet from God. We just made it up and it ignores all these things we were discovering. And I was really struck by that. Why do you think, I mean, some of these um, researchers that you talk about in your book are, are well known to people that know education like John Dewey and, and, and um, you know, even some of the people inspired by B.F. Skinner and the behaviorists. Um, but there are plenty of names that even I had not heard. Um, and, you know, I look at this, I should know some of these maybe. Um, and I, I imagine other people in the audience wouldn't have know, wouldn't know of. Why do you think that more more people aren't aware of some of the major trends and, and findings in learning science in the education world. I uh, am staggered by it, actually, and by myself. I mean, I didn't know, right? So I blame myself. Why did I not know? And I think it's because we, it's one of these traditions that's passed on, and it seems so holy and so sacred that we don't... Like how to it. teach, you mean? Yeah, how to teach and, you know, what a classroom is and, you know, the whole, you know movies about you know you know i mean we're sort of it's a framework it's so so burned into our memories uh, into our image of the world 
right? I mean, the image of a professor, right? The image of a teacher, the image of the professor sort of, uh, and the, 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 sorry, the image of the student, you know, taking notes or missing an assignment. It's, it's I, we're blinded to it, you know? It's like the Hubel um, weasel experiment. What they did was they raised kittens in a room with only vertical pajama stripes. And they release it to the outdoors, and they, they find that these kittens can recognize horizontal features. They can't jump onto them. We're like those kittens. You know, we grew up with these images of what education is, and we just never question it. Right now, with the internet, theoretically, we have more information than humans have ever had at their fingertips, and it's dis dispersed more even, or, you know, more broadly than, than ever. Yet it doesn't necessarily feel like we're in a renaissance of of knowledge we might actually be it's just that we haven't uh, i think that there is a a bit of a divergent path a little bit right um if you are if you take you know the steve Jobses of the world of course he was pre-internet right i mean he dropped out of reed college right but yeah. he was able to construct a world view that has shaped everything we do today Right. I mean, I'm using my Mac. I'm using my iPhone to talk to you. Right. And uh, so um, so I think that we are actually in a renaissance. But um, I just want to clarify, though, I am not one of those people who says, oh, you don't need to learn the multiplication tables. You do. You do. Because it facilitates rapid chain thinking, you know, chunking of thought and really sort of accelerated. You know, if I can't multiply, you know, if I can't calculate 12 squared in my head, you know, then it's going to slow me down. So you do still have to sort of eat your vegetables. You still got to do it. But I think we have siloed way too much on the one hand, and we're too sort of push, and we don't uh, elicit from students the desire. But we have to, I think in the 21st century, the gig economy, freelancing, elancing, rapidly changing technologies, we have to become meta learners. We have to become, learning is a resiliency, just as, you know, everything, anything else. So. And so do you think, at the do do learners need to better understand this as well as teachers about how people grasp things is that part of is that part of what's needed how tragic is it that an undergraduate goes into college and she's going to spend 4 years getting an undergraduate degree and no one ever tells her what learning is i i suspect most people can't really define learning at the deep level is it memorizing? You know? I mean, I said, feel it in my bones, and I was struggling, and I called, called it grasp, right? So um, we absolutely, and by the way, one of the things I found is when you have, when educational innovation occurs, the teachers have a change, but sometimes the students are the roadblock because the poor things have been brought up, told to expect things in a certain way, and they feel a little bit like, why are you changing it on me, you know? Or, you know, are you shortchanging me, right? Am I missing something, right? Right, you didn't give me the lecture. I didn't get a lecture. And you're the famous professor or whatever. Right. By the way, I mean, how tragic is it that the word lecture is, like my daughter will say to me, you know, Daddy, don't lecture me, right? Or, you know, it's academic, right? The ivory tower, right? I mean, it, 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 that, that's got to tell us something that we're not, you know, getting something right, right? Well, honestly, there's plenty to chew on here and, and a, good, a good reason for people to go out and check out your book. But thank you so much for sharing today and for, for talking with us. Such a pleasure, Jeff. Great to see you again and look forward to the day we can uh, have a coffee in, uh, in Cambridge. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we go on action-packed learning adventures like this one. 
just might work. If you like the show, please take a minute to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For a couple weeks there, I was actually getting a bunch of new reviews, um, and I really appreciated that, but then they kind of stopped. So if you have been thinking about doing this review thing, um, please stop and go to your app and click the button. Um, Five stars, maybe? It really does help others find the show. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter, at J.R. Young. And thanks, as always, to our fearless and always MacGyver-like Tony Wan, the managing editor of EdSurge. I want to take a minute also to say happy holidays, and I wish everyone out there a safe season. Please wear a mask and follow the science around this COVID thing. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.